we can see that Christmas is coming. You see the signs all around you. Over a month ago, stores started selling Christmas decorations already, and people started putting them up. And now that it's after Thanksgiving, finally we're, we are in full-blown Christmas mode. You see it here, the decorations in the church, and even our sermons are about Christmas. We are starting this week with our first, seri- first of our Advent series as we, uh, as we preach messages on the birth of Christ, on the coming of his first coming, coming of Jesus. And so, with all of that, finally, we are in Christmas. I can finally ask a question that I've been wanting to ask for a long time. What is the deal with the little drummer boy? Now, I don't want to offend anybody here, okay? I know this is a divisive topic, okay? We don't want to cause a church split over the little drummer boy or anything like that. Some people really like the song. Some people aren't so sure. The music's a little bit different, kind of the marching music. And it's the kind of music that I don't know if I would, if I would choose to put it on. But if it comes on, I'll listen to it and I'll enjoy it. It's fine. Uh, And actually, I was warned, uh, well, a little bit too late. Pastor Evan um, came to me in between services and he goes, Hey, I just, he said, Can you guess what song the choir is doing on December 18th? And I went, No, what? He's like, Guess. Oh, no. (laughs) They're doing the little drummer boy. So I I don't mean anything negative about the song, okay? So hear, hear me out. Because it's really about the story. The lyrics tell a story. And the story is about a young boy who's asked by the wise men, by the magi, to come and see the newborn king. But when this young boy gets there and he sees the magi giving, them, giving Jesus gifts, he realizes that, is that he is a poor boy. He has no gift to bring to the king. But he has one thing that he can do. And so he asks if he can play his drum for Jesus. And so he plays his drum, he plays his best for Jesus, and Jesus smiles at him. Now, it's a cute story, it's not biblical, and we're not trying to say it's biblical, and that's not my point here this morning. It's a cute story. But there's kind of this question I have of, okay, what's the big deal with it, though? Why should we care about the little drummer boy? Why is this a thing? And all of the stuff that's going on at Christmas, and the importance of the birth of Jesus and all that that means, why are we taking time out of that to talk about the little drummer boy? And yet, this is a popular song. Lots of famous artists have done their own versions of it, and uh, it's, you're, you will hear it on the radio this year. You will hear it in this church this year. It, it has become a big deal. Why? What's the deal with this young poor boy that has nothing to bring to Jesus? And I think that's the point. I think we see something of ourselves in that young boy, that at times we feel that we have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to offer our Savior and our King. No gift to bring. And yet, would he still use us? Would he still use something that I can do for him to be a part of his greater plan, to be a part of his kingdom? And that leads us to our passage in Luke 1 today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. This is on page 855 in the Bible in front of you. And I'm going to tell the story today of Zechariah. And one of the questions you might have about the story of Zechariah is, what does Zechariah have to do with Christmas? I mean, if we're, if we're doing sermons about Christmas now, coming up, what does Zechariah really have to do with Christmas? And that is a good question. In fact, that's the exact right question that you're supposed to ask. And so we will find that as we dig into this this morning. Our story starts off in verse 5 of chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and we're introduced to our two main characters of the story. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we've got these two main characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth is his wife. Now there's two things that you need to know about Zechariah and Elizabeth, two things that you need to know about this couple, and we find those out in the next two verses. The first thing is in verse 6, it says this, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were faithful Israelites. Now, this doesn't mean that they were perfect. It doesn't mean that they had never sinned. But they were were faithful in following God's covenant. They were seeking to follow him, seeking to honor him with what they did. And when they did sin, they would go and offer the sacrifices necessary to cover that sin. And so they were, they were, your, they were faithful Israelites, faithful to God's covenant that he made with Moses the, the law. They were faithful to that. That's the first thing you need to know. And it's really important that you know that because of the second thing that we need to know. Because the second thing feels a lot like a contradiction to the first thing. It doesn't really make sense. He says this, verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They're faithful to God and yet they have no child. Elizabeth was barren. Now, from our perspective, our cultural context, we might think, okay, what's the big deal? How is that a contradiction? But back then, this was a big deal. In fact, under that old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, if you were faithful to the covenant, there was blessings that you would expect to receive. And if you were not faithful to the covenant, there was curses you would expect to receive. And one of the blessings of the covenant was that you would be fruitful, that you would have lots of kids. And one of the curses, if you weren't faithful to that covenant, would be that you were barren that God would not give you any kids. So do you see the issue here? Wait, this couple, they're faithful to God's covenant, and yet God has not given them any kids. And this this doesn't just make them feel bad. This doesn't just cause them to ask questions. The people around them as well, they would wonder, what's going on in their lives? What secret sin do they have that nobody can see? Because they look good on the outside. But what secret sin is going on in their life that God would not give them children? But, If you've been paying attention, as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the rest of the Bible, this will signal you. You'll see this looks like God's about to do something here. That's what you need to know about Zechariah and Elizabeth as we now get into this story. Our story starts in verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. Zechariah is a priest, and he's of the division of Abijah. And so for For two weeks every year, Zechariah would go to Jerusalem and would serve at the temple with his division. Every year for two weeks, that that was part of his job, was to go to the temple and serve there. And so he's there doing that job. And while he's there, this next part in verse 9 says, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So... There were these priestly duties like going in and offering incense at the altar. And on that day, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter in and to do that. And this was a big deal. This didn't happen very often. In fact, there were so many priests that it was, you only had about a once in a lifetime chance of being chosen to go in and offer incense um, at the altar like that. It didn't happen very often. So this is a once in a lifetime thing for Zechariah. Now, you'll notice, and I, and I think we need to understand this and explain it, because you'll notice it says chosen by lot. Now, we often hear that when we think about casting lots. We think about rolling dice. We think about gambling. It seems like it's random chance 
that Zechariah was chosen to enter the temple that day. That's often what we associate it with. And we see casting lots throughout the Bible, and we think that they're just kind of, this is the unbiased way to choose. We're just leaving it up to chance. Whatever happens, happens. But that's not what it meant. And that's not what they thought about it. This was how they discerned God's will. They're asking God, who do you want to enter the temple today? And they're, they've got a bunch of names in a hat, and they're pulling it out, and they go, oh, okay, Zechariah, it's God's will that you offer incense on the altar today. So it's safe to say that it was God's will for Zechariah to go into the temple and offer incense that day, and he would have understood it like that. Okay, God has chosen me to come and offer incense. So he goes in the temple, and he goes to the altar, and then it says here in verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. All of a sudden, there's an angel standing there, And typically, as you read through the Bible, what happens when an angel shows up? What's the first thing they have to say? Do not be afraid, because apparently they're frightening, and people get afraid. Maybe it's just the sudden appearance, or maybe it's something about them, overwhelming. I don't know, but it happens again. This angel shows up, and Zechariah is afraid. He's startled. What's going on here? And so the angel says, do not be afraid. And then the angel gives him a message. That's what angel means is messenger. And so he has a message to give to Zechariah. And there's three really important things that I want you to see in this message. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to carry us through the rest of our passage today, these three important things. The first thing that the angel says in verse 13 is, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. First one is your prayer has been heard. The second one is your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And the third is, and you shall call his name John. These three things are very important. He says more, and we're going to get to that in a second, but these three things are very important for where we're going the rest of this morning. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will have a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, I I know that you might be thinking, well, those, those all seem like one thing pulled together, and they are. They are. Right? So clearly, Zechariah has been praying for a son. We don't know if he's been praying that recently, but in the past, he has certainly prayed for a son, and God is answering that prayer. He's going to give him a son, and then he tells him the name that he's going to give to that son. It's John. So we see how it's all connected, but what we're going to see is the progression of faith in Zechariah's life through these three things. Your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will have a son, and his name shall be called John. I think the next verse, verse 14, relates to that middle one. Your wife shall bear a son. Because verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This makes sense. People are excited when a new baby is born. And uh, the people around them, Zachariah and his wife, they're going to be excited when this baby is born. But then verse 15 and on, I think it all relates to his name is John. Because on the surface, his name is John doesn't really mean a whole lot. John means God is gracious, which fits. That's great. But there's so much more packed into that phrase, his name shall be called John. And we see some of it here with verse 15 and on. It says, For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's, that's the significance of his name being John. What, what God means by all of that, what the angel is saying by all of that is this child is going to be special. He's going to be great before the Lord 
and God, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly how much Zechariah got from this in that moment. Um, he had probably read the prophecies of Malachi and knew about the one, about Elijah coming again to prepare the way for God's Messiah. So maybe he had an inkling, maybe he had some understanding of what this meant, but we see the bigger picture. This son, John, that Zechariah and his wife are going to have, this is John the baptizer, or John the Baptist as we know him. And he's the one that's going to prepare the way for Jesus. He's going to, to bring a baptism of repentance, to call people to come back to the Lord, and, then, and make a way for the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. We know how big and how important this is is. And Zechariah at least gets some of that. I've heard your prayer, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son, and you shall call his name John. That's the essence of the angel's message there. And how does Zechariah respond to that message? It says here in verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah's response is important. And it tells us something of what Zechariah is thinking and feeling right here. Oftentimes when, when we preach this, you've probably heard Pastor Bob talk about this in the last couple years. We contrast Zechariah's response and Mary's response. In just a few verses, Mary's going to get visited by the same angel, and she's going to hear a very similar message that she's going to have a child. But her response is a little bit different than Zechariah's. The problem, though, is we read it, they seem very similar. So why, why does Zechariah get in trouble for his response, as we'll see? And why does Mary not get in trouble for her response? We're not going to focus on Mary today. We're just going to focus on Zechariah. But we'll see why his response is not the right response. What does he mean? What are the implications of how shall I know this? What he's saying is, I don't think I believe this. I'm not sure I can believe this. I need more. Can you give me a sign? I need a sign to prove to me that this is true, that this will actually happen because I'm having trouble believing it. And we see that with the next phrase there. I'm an old man and my wife is advanced of years. I don't really think that this can happen. Zechariah he shows his doubt. He shows that he's struggling to have faith that what the angel said was true. Now, I want to be clear here, and, and we'll even see evidence for this in a moment, that this is not the right response. Zechariah is wrong in his response here. And so my, my goal here is not to justify what Zechariah says, but I want to try to understand where he's coming from a little bit better, and maybe we'll have some sympathy for where Zechariah is at. I want you to imagine being in Zechariah's place. You've been a faithful Israelite your whole life. You've been faithful to God's covenant, and yet he has never given you a child. And this was a big deal back then, much bigger deal than it is today. Lots of people choose not to have kids today, but back then, having a child was everything. That was your legacy. That was your significance in life was having a child. That was, that was how you passed down your, not only your name, but who you were to the next generations. To die alone, childless, you would feel like you had no significance in this life. And you can imagine Zachariah and Elizabeth feeling like that as they come to the end of their life, knowing that they're going to die soon and feeling like no one's ever going to remember us. There's no one to carry on our legacy. There's no one to carry on 
We, we have no contribution to this world if we don't have any kids. And that's the way that Zechariah and Elizabeth might have felt at that time. Then all of a sudden, this angel appears to Zechariah on the day he gets chosen by God to come into the temple. And an angel appears to him. What does he tell him? Number one, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now I think, I think that Zechariah would have believed that. I think it was obvious to him. Right? He had been praying and all of a sudden there's an angel standing there in front of him. It would be hard not to believe that God had heard his prayer. And maybe he feels in that moment a little bit relief. Okay, at least God has heard me. At least God has heard my prayer. But then the angel goes on. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. How would you feel in his situation if you heard that? That's a little bit harder to believe. I mean, I know that God has done that in the past with other people, but God's probably not going to do that for us. Our time has passed. We're too old. This isn't going to work. Maybe just like Sarah, he kind of chuckled, laughed. <laughs> like we would have kids in our old age. No. I just don't think I can believe that that will happen. But not only that, think about this third piece that, that just blows it out of the water. Not only are you going to have a son, but this son is going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be the one that prepares the way for God's Messiah. Your son is going to be special. You are going to be part of my bigger plan of bringing redemption to the world. And Zechariah hears that and goes, that's even harder to believe, that God would use me in his greater plan. I just can't get there. And it seems like Zachariah is maybe feeling something like that at that moment. And I share that not to, not to say, not to justify his response, but have some sympathy for the guy. Because honestly, I would have probably been right there with him. Yeah, that sounds great, but it kind of sounds too good to be true. I just don't know if I believe that God will do this. So we have Zachariah's response. How shall I know this? I need a sign if I'm really going to believe that this is happen, happening. Then the angel answered him. The angel has a response to this, and he says this, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Starting off, he name drops himself. I am Gabriel. And this is big. We, we recognize that. We hear that. We go, yeah, I know the angel Gabriel. Now, we usually know him from this story, and he's the same angel that comes to Mary and to Joseph as well. Uh, but Zechariah actually would have known him from before. This is the same angel that came to Daniel and gave him visions all the way over 400 years ago, the angel that came and spoke to Daniel. Zechariah would have known this. Oh, wow. You're that Gabriel. The next thing he says is, I stand in the presence of God. You can just imagine him being like, you know where I just was? Like, you're, you're having trouble believing me right now? Do you, do you know where I just came from? Yeah, uh, the presence of God. Have you heard of him? The creator of the universe, sustains, holds everything in his hands? Yeah, I was just with him, and he's the one that told me to come and bring this message of good news to you. Now, I can't help but putting kind of a sarcastic twist on it a little bit. Maybe Gabriel wasn't sarcastic about it. But it just kind of feels, you kind of feel it there. <clears throat> Zechariah should have believed this. There's an angel standing in front of him with a message from the Lord. Zechariah should have believed this, but he doesn't. And so Gabriel says, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. 
Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He highlights right there, we, we see proof that Zechariah did not believe, because Gabriel mentions it right there. Because you did not believe, I'm going to give you a sign. But it's probably not the sign you wanted or the sign you were expecting. You will be unable to speak. You won't be able to talk until these things take place. Until your child is born, you're not going to be able to say a thing. And I love the irony in this. Because Zechariah finally has wonderful news to share. And he can't tell anybody. I remember each time that we found out that Jill was pregnant... I was so excited to tell people. Even by the fourth one, I was still so excited to tell people that we were going to have another child. And this is Zachariah's first, and he's waited so long for it, and he doesn't get to tell anybody. There's something else going on here, though. And this is what I think is really cool, and this gets to the bigger idea of the whole passage, is because God's actually going to use his doubt God's going to use Zachariah's doubt. God's going to use Zachariah's lack of faith for even greater glory for him. And we see that because the people were wondering at the delay. He's taking longer than usual. What's going on in there? It says, verse 22, And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. God uses this to build anticipation. You can imagine if Zechariah had been able to speak and he comes out of the temple and he's like, hey guys, guess what? I just saw a vision. There was an angel there and the angel told me that, that me and my wife, we're going to have a baby and this is wonderful. You can imagine people being a little skeptical. Oh, really? You saw an angel, huh? Like, no offense, buddy, but you guys are kind of old. I think that time has passed. You're not going to have a child. They would be a little suspect, uh, skeptical of the vision. Maybe, maybe. But he comes out and he can't say anything. And so they know something happened there. They know something is going on, and God's going to use this to build anticipation that we'll see comes through at the end. I think at this point, Zechariah, he believes that God has heard his prayer. The angel visited him. It's clear that that is true. God has heard his prayer. But he's struggling to believe that God would give him a son, that God would answer that prayer and actually give him a son through his wife, Elizabeth. And I think he's also really struggling to believe that God would actually use him in his greater plan, that he would have significance and an impact in the world through what God is going to do through him. Zechariah is struggling with his faith. And we're going to see how he comes to faith in those two other areas. And the first one comes fairly quickly. We see a first step of faith that Zechariah takes. Because his time of service ended and so he goes home. And uh, you can imagine how that conversation went when he got home. He, he can't talk, right? And, and this isn't like today where you could text or you could type it out or even, even writing was much more difficult back then. And so he's just having to do charades to try to describe to his wife what's going on here. And so he's just going like, hey. And she's like looking at him like, what are you trying to say? Are you saying that I'm fat? Like, welcome home, honey. You can sleep on the couch. He didn't sleep on the couch that night, though, um, and, I don't, and I don't say that to be crass or anything like that, but there is a step of faith that he takes. He has been told that he will have a child, and so he goes home, and him and his wife conceive and have a child together. It says this, so, so we see the first step in Zachariah's faith of, of having a child with, with Elizabeth. Verse 24 and 25 
It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In that second verse, we see that Elizabeth recognizes that this is going to remove her shame. That this shame that she's had of not being able to bear a child, that that other people would have been looking down upon her, God's going to take that away with giving her a child. But there's something else going on here. I think Elizabeth is having a little bit of a crisis of faith as well. She's struggling to have faith that this is actually going to happen because in verse 24 it says that she kept herself hidden for five months. And you have to ask that question, why? She's got such great news, why is she keeping herself hidden for so long? And I think... Maybe a lot of you can understand this. I think of women who have had a miscarriage. And after having that miscarriage, if you get pregnant again, you're a lot more hesitant to share that good news with other people, aren't you? It's harder because you don't want to be disappointed again. And you're wondering, will this actually happen? Will this actually carry through this time? Or am I going to lose another child? And so you're a little more hesitant to share that good news with other people. And I think maybe Elizabeth was feeling that way as well. Can I really believe that God is going to do this? I mean, it's a miracle that I got pregnant, but is this child really going to be born? Elizabeth has her own story of coming to faith. And that happens a little bit later in this chapter, but we're actually skipping over that. Pastor Bob's going to come back to that in later weeks. We're going to stick with Zechariah. And so we're coming back to verse 57. Nine months later, it's finally time for the baby to be born. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. The time's come. It's wonderful. This son is born, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The wonderful day has come. God has fulfilled his promise Uh, He has given Elizabeth and Zechariah a son. He's born, and everybody's celebrating. Everybody is rejoicing that this child has been born. Now, the next thing that happens is eight days later, they go to circumcise the son. That was the ritual, right? After eight days, all male Israelites would be circumcised. And at that same time was also when they would name the child. So, uh, they go to name him, and it's actually kind of funny because the relatives are there, and it's like they, they've already made up their mind. They've already assumed what they're going to name the child. And so they're over here filling out the birth certificate, and they're like, hey, is that Zachariah with an E or with an A? And Elizabeth is like, wait, no. He shall be called John. Those same words that Gabriel spoke to Zachariah, he has passed on to his wife. And she says, he shall be called John. But the relatives are like, what? John? What kind of name is John? Why would you name a kid that? And we can understand this today. That's why some parents are hesitant to tell uh, people what they're going to name their child until after it's already born. They're expecting a a, a response like this. So they're they're like, why would you name him John? No one in our family is called John. And so they go to the dad. He's more reasonable, right? Zachariah, hey, We want to name him after you because this is probably the only child you're going to have, and so we want to honor you, and that makes sense. Let's name him Zachariah. This is Zachariah's moment. What's he going to do? He has a choice. Is he going to believe what God has said, or is he going to try to do it on his own? Is he going to try to to, to make this his own child, or is he going to trust God? We get to the big moment, verse 63. 
He asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And in that moment, we see that Zechariah fully believes. He believes all that God has said. He believes that God has heard his prayer. He believes that his wife will have a son. And he believes that his name shall be called John and all that comes with that. That this will be the promised child that will prepare the way for the Lord. Zechariah believes it in that moment. We see, we see his faith expressed in that moment when he writes his name is John. And we know it's a big moment because it's at that same moment, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, praising God. He's been mute for the last nine months and the first thing that he does is he praises God. That's big, that's important. He could have been, he could have been angry at God for the last nine months, seething, just waiting to tell God what he really thought, but he doesn't. Instead, Zechariah grows in his faith over those nine months And so when he can finally speak again, the first words out of his mouth are a praise to God. And we see the effect that this has on the people around him. I said earlier, his silence has built anticipation. God actually used his lack of faith, this sign of him being mute for the last nine months, he actually uses it to bring this message further and wider, to to show the importance of what God was doing here says in verse 65, And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. They're asking that question already. What will this child be? Zechariah gets to see his part in God's greater plan. John is the one who, who will prepare the way for the Lord. But Zechariah gets to pre-prepare people. He's not just raising this child. He's actually getting people ready, all ready. They're already asking that question. What will this child be? They see that something is special, and so they're going to wait in anticipation for the day that comes when John will start preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Zechariah gets to be a part of God's plan. That praising God, that blessing that he speaks is is outlined in this prophecy that comes up next. And I'm not going to work through the whole thing. Uh, The first part, we get the big idea of what's going on. God has saved his people and he is going to save his people. So we see through those first few verses there. But then it zeroes in and it gets to to the smaller details, to the smaller picture of what's going on here and now. It says this in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. John is going to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's going to prepare the way for God to come and bring salvation to his people through the forgiveness of their sins. Because God is merciful and he will shine his light in the dark places. John is going to get to be the one who prepares the way for God to do his great work of salvation in the world. And then it ends. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now as we finish that story, we still have that question. What does Zechariah have to do with Christmas? And 
The answer here is found in the big picture. We see God's greater picture, his, his redemptive plan for humanity that goes all the way back to our sin, all the way in the beginning in Genesis 3. And then we see it coming to completion here in, in John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death on the cross for our sins. But he doesn't stay dead. If he had, then that meant his death would have, was worth nothing. But on the third day, he rose again, proving that his sacrifice worked, that we have been forgiven for our sins, that we can be right with God again and have eternal life with him. That's the plan that they get to be a part of. And so as we focus Christmas on the birth of Jesus, Zachariah and John get to be a part of that because John is the one that's going to prepare the way for Jesus. So we see that in the big picture, but it still brings up the question, but why tell it this way? Why, why Zechariah? Why does Luke tell us this story about Zechariah? The other three gospel writers don't even mention Zechariah's name. They just jump right to John the Baptist as an adult starting his ministry. And yet Luke thought it was important to include this story of Zechariah here. And I think because it tells us something about ourselves as well. Zechariah felt insignificant. His life was coming to an end. Him and his wife would die, and no one would ever remember them. But God heard his prayer. God gave his wife and him, Elizabeth, and him a son. And his name shall be called John. That son is going to be special. He's going to be used by God, a part of God's bigger plan, redemption for the world. He's going to be the one that prepares the way for Jesus. And we can see this in our own life as well. God has heard our prayers, our cries. God works in our circumstances. And then God uses us for his greater plan. In fact, this made me think of Egypt. Back in Exodus... The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. In Exodus 3, God comes to Moses and he says, I've heard my people's cries. And then what does God do? God goes and he works in their circumstances. Where they're at as slaves in Egypt, he works in their circumstances to bring them out of slavery, to rescue them out of that darkness. And then does he leave them there? Does he just land them in the wilderness and say, okay, I saved you, now good luck. No, he's got a greater plan for them. God doesn't want to just save them, he also wants to use them and he calls Israel a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They're to be his representatives to the whole world. They're to share the light of God with the other nations. But we know how that goes throughout the rest of the Old Testament. A lot of the time, they don't do a very good job at it. But God will see his plan through. And that's why, ultimately, he brings the true and better Israel. Israel as it should have been in his son, Jesus, to fulfill that plan to preach the good news, but then ultimately to die on the cross, to make a way for people to be a part of God's kingdom, to make a way for people to be one with him again. We're a part of that plan as well. God hears me. God works in me. God wants to work through me. And I think those first two, I think we get that. We don't have a problem with that. We know that God hears our prayers. In fact, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can be even more confident that he hears our prayers because we have direct access to the Father through Jesus. 
We know that God hears our prayers. Maybe it doesn't always feel like it, but we know that God hears our prayers. We know that God works in us. I know, I've seen the work that God has done in my life. I know the change that has happened, right? And I'm not talking about God giving us everything we want and giving us lots of, of money or, or health, things like that. God is working in us to make us more like him. He's transforming us from the inside out, turning us from these broken sinners into these righteous followers of him. So God is working in my life, and I know that and I believe that. But the part that is really hard for me to believe, the part that is really hard for me to step out in faith is that last one. The idea that God wants to work through me. You see, I know that God has this bigger plan. I know that he's working in the world, but why would God ever want to use me for that? And I know it might seem silly for me to say that as a pastor in a church who gets to preach to all of you this morning, but I still feel that way often. Why would God want to use me? And it's because of that doubt. It's because of that lack of faith that I struggle to step out and to bring that message to the people around me. You see, this story today, it's all about messengers. Angel Gabriel is a messenger. Angel literally means messenger. So he comes to bring a message to Zechariah. And Zechariah is a messenger too, albeit a reluctant and silent one for a while. He still gets to be a messenger. And then he's going to raise this great messenger, John the baptizer, who's going to come and to, going to, to proclaim repentance, right? He's going to call God's people back to himself, and then he's going to announce the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist is going to be a messenger, making the way for another great messenger, Jesus, who not only teaches and proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand, but actually makes it possible for us to be a part of that. And that brings the story up to, to this point, to where we are at today. If we are going to join God in his plan, what part of the plan do we join him in? We're not Zachariah, we're not John the Baptist, we're not Jesus. We join in after that. The work has been done, it is finished. God has accomplished all he wanted to on the cross. And now it is our job to bring that message of good news to the nations. That's the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We've been given a mission by God. We get to join him in his work, and he wants to use us. He doesn't need to use us, but he wants to use us in his greater plan of bringing that message to the people around us to share the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God actually wants to use you in that mission? And that mission looks differently in a lot of different situations. I love that we got to hear from some of our missionaries this morning. Some of those missionaries who in a lot of ways seem like they're right on the front lines of that battle. And yet, what did, what did she say is one of their biggest focuses right now? to reach out to their own kids, to raise them up, to, to neglect their own kids, to bring the message to the nations. That's not what God has called them to do. He's called them to share the good news with their own kids first and then to share the message with the nations. Who in your life is God calling you to bring that message of the gospel to? Maybe it's those close to you. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. That's a part of God's plan is for us to share 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus with them. We've also been given a responsibility. We've also been given an opportunity to bring that message to others as well. Others that have not heard it. Others that have not understood it. Maybe it's people living in foreign countries. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's these other people in your life and you don't know if they've ever really truly heard the message of Jesus. And we have an opportunity to bring it to them. My point here today is not to guilt you into evangelism. It doesn't work. I've tried to guilt myself into it and it doesn't work. My point is to help you see, to help you believe that God wants to work through you to bring this message to people around you. God has a desire to use you in his greater plan to bring this message to all the nations. God wants to use you in that. And Christmas is a great time to do it. It's dark out, and we have the light. We can share it with people. Christmas has has turned so much into a holiday of consumerism and selfishness, and yet we have a different way to celebrate it. And we can show that. People will see that we, we view this holiday different. That it's not all about the presents and the decorations and all the stuff that I get. That it's actually about a child that was born 2,000 years ago. Not the one we talked about today, but the one that's coming up. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus and what he did for us. This is a wonderful time of year to share that message. And so I want to encourage you to have faith that God wants to use you to do it. God wants to use you to share his message with the people around you. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us. God, that you have, you have been working in the world ever since the beginning to bring salvation to us, and that you did that through your son Jesus on the cross for our sins. Lord, I pray that we would understand that message of the gospel. I pray that we would understand that message of good news that we have heard from others. Whether it's our parents or or friends or strangers or whatever it is, Lord, we have heard that message and we have believed it. And God, I pray that you would help us to see that we now have an opportunity to bring that same message to others around us. That we have a great opportunity to join you in your work and the work that you're doing in the world to share the good news of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection with all who are willing to hear it. God, I pray that we would remember through all of that that you are with us, that Jesus is with us to the end of the age to help us in that mission. We pray this all in your name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.